show this morning. First of all, I want to, is JT in the room? There you are. Let me find you. There you are. Okay. JT, I want to just tell you I'm really blessed. Uh, don't hear this wrong. There's a simplicity about you that I really love. It's a simplicity that is uh, young, and I know that you're not real young. You're in the middle there somewhere. You're dad. Um, but it's the kind of simplicity that Jesus inferred when he talked about the children coming to him because he says they, they receive the kingdom, and you get the kingdom in that simplicity. There's a sincerity in you when you lead us, uh, and that, that draws us up to God. So keep going. Thank you. Uh, the other thing, too, is you've been fathered well, but you have an incredibly great father right now who is taking over, and uh, he's going to show you a whole lot of stuff. So you're blessed, man. This morning, uh, you know, JT saying, if you say, come, I will come. If you say, wait, I will wait. And uh, frankly, the Lord woke me up with invitation this morning about 4 o'clock. And I am more rested than I've been in a long time and arrested with message. So I'm going to break away from the pattern. I know the pattern has been, I've been sitting up there at the wheel Frankly, that's become my security zone, so I'm breaking out of my comfort zone, and I want to share with you this morning uh, some thoughts that I believe can be life changers and actually make us into world changers, which is God's destiny for us. Starting out right off with uh, uh, John 10.10, 10. the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus saying, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. That word life there is Zoe life. It's God life. Guys, this was the verse that hooked me before I was a believer, before I committed my life to Christ. I read this verse and I'm thinking, man, I got it all right now. I had just gotten married to an absolutely beautiful woman. My life was straightening out. She loved me intensely. It was honeymoon time. I've got, uh, you know, my bills are getting paid finally again. I mean, I went through a divorce, went through a period of drunkenness and craziness and, you know, getting behind financially, almost lost my property and, and business, but the Lord rescued all that. So I've been through tough times, and now suddenly now I'm like in great times. And in the midst of this, I'm starting to read the Bible, and my wife's really reading the Bible, but I'm, I'm kind of reading it. I'm reading it partly because I've got these born-again cousins that live in Denver at that time, and they kept coming up with the four spiritual laws and telling me I'm going to hell. It's, it's a great invitation, you know. And, and I'm, I'm partly reading the Bible so I can argue with them. True confession. Anyway, I come across this verse, and I'm going, have more life? More abundant life than this? God, this is, this is pretty good right now. You mean there might be something more? 
and the imagination began to go. And, and the Lord just began to draw me in with that verse. It has been a, a, a wonderful verse for me through the whole course of my life. And this morning, I want to share with you four questions, along with some scriptures and thoughts, that I believe that if we enter into these questions, if we engage these questions, apply them to our lives honestly, and some of these you will carry for the balance of your life, you will experience a more abundant life. Some of these are hard ones. I'll just say it right up front. These are going to be examining questions for, your, for yourself. You know, as a pastor over 20 years in a small community, I've, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of funerals. I say privilege because it's, it's where the rubber meets the road time. And I have to tell you that I've done memorial services for guys, I'm just going to talk about guys right now, guys that, uh, you know, in the worldly sense, you would say these are highly successful men, either in their position or their material wealth or whatever. And, and frankly, most of the time, these guys, when I look at the attendance, it will be either small or kind of medium. And if it's medium, it's typically these, these guys or whoever's showing up want to get a little favor going in here. There's a little politics involved with this. I'm talking real here. But I'll tell you, in the last few years of the ministry, and actually even after I stepped away, I got invited back for one of these, I, I spoke for three memorial services for three different men, and our church, our new building that we built, it seats up to about 300 within the, the auditorium, within the sanctuary space. And then there's room for standing. And then we've monitored into the fellowship hall, which is kind of the size of your lobby out there. It was a big picture thing. There are sound screens. And at these three memorial services, the whole auditorium is jam-packed. There is not an empty seat in the house. People are standing against the walls in the back, People are all filled up, the whole auditorium or the fellowship hall is full, and, and we open up the offices that are overlooking the, the area down here, windows are open up, they're jam-packed with people. There are people out in the lobby area so they can kind of barely listen and hear. Why are there so many people at these funerals? Because frankly, all three of these men did not have high positions. They certainly didn't have a lot of money, but they lived abundant lives. They gave generously. They were courageous men who spoke truth with a lot of love. They took risks with people, and whatever Jesus asked them to do, they did. My favorite of the three of them is a man named Rick, Rick Papp. Rick Papp probably never went below 300 pounds. Rick Papp was about six foot five and usually out of three and a quarter, 350, and he hugged people. And I'll tell you, when Rick would give me a hug, I thought I was six years old in my daddy's arms. I mean, I'm not that little, but I was little with Rick. Rick was the town Santa Claus 
for, I mean, it was a position that was given to him uh, for about 12 years. Our town, Santa Claus, is a big deal. We have a, a parade on Friday after Thanksgiving. We have this mountain called S Mountain for Salida. And, and when Santa rides in on his sleigh, he points at that mountain and the lights, there are lights all over this mountain that the volunteers in our town have put up and the whole mountain lights up. Now that's pretty powerful. And, and my friend Rick got to do that every year, but the real deal was he was Santa Claus all year long. His wife would go, oh, Rick, why are you giving that away? Rick, we can't afford this. Why, you, you, another car? Rick, we can't just, you know, who's sleeping in what bedroom? You know, on and on. And, and Deb and I are good friends, and she would be more than happy for me to share what I just shared. He was just generous. He just give away and give away, but he also kept getting stuff all the time because that's how God is. He's just a lover of people. He didn't care who you were. He took in people that were drunk on the streets. He took in whoever. I loved them. And, and Rick got cancer. And I remember the first time we, he, was, he was bedridden in, inside of, uh, of, his, of his house in the living room. And uh, the first time we brought a worship team over, because he loved to worship God, and, and he could no longer come to the church. At that point, he was too weak. And, and he props himself up. He sees us all coming in. We're all kind of sad-faced, you know. He looks out at us, and he goes, Hey, guys, listen. Either way, I win. You know, if, if I get a miracle, and this prostate cancer is beaten, and I get, you know, my, if my two kids ever get it together, and, you know, I have kids, and I get to be a grandpa, I win. But you know what? If that doesn't happen, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to see my mom and my dad and my brother. I'm going to see some friends that have already gone out. I'm going to see Jesus. Either way, I win. The last week of his life, and Lisa, my wife, and I got to live with those guys during that time and just minister to them. Because Rick was one of my best friends. But he was really everybody's best friend. I mean, the town just starts pouring in because they know it, it's about time, you know. And these, you know, last couple words or those of us who are believers want to pray for him, whatever. And every time Rick would, Rick would kind of lean up. And he's really weak at this point. But he'd lean up and he'd smile. He'd go, yeah, I'll let you pray for me, but i got to pray for you first. And he did. He blessed everybody that came in that house. And then he went home. And I'll tell you, that service rocked. There were three preachers at that service. I was one of them. And there were at least a half a dozen pastors sitting in the audience. Because this man's life spoke Jesus. This man's life spoke abundance. That's what I want to invite you into this morning. So Lord, we present ourselves to you. We welcome your presence already here. Father, you are so good to us that you gave us your son who so well taught us. Jesus, thank you for giving it all for us. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you here to individually minister and speak to each person here. 
that their worthiness is found in the fact that we are all your sons. And for any who have yet to receive Christ, soon to be sons. We love you, Lord. Thanks. So question number one. Whose life are you living? This is a toughie, guys. Let's go to Matthew 16. And we're going to look at uh, verse 25. And then just keep your finger in Matthew because then we're going to switch over to 10. Matthew 16, verse 30, or 25. Jesus is speaking. Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to actually back up to 24, which I don't think you guys have, so let me read it to you. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, in other words, following him, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And here it comes. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? The question here, whose life are you going to live? Are you going to live, because the key word with life there is your life. Are you going to maintain ownership of your life? Or are you going to surrender that ownership to the Lord? Let's read what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Just a little to your left. Matthew 10, verses 39 and 40. They enlarged the print, but they thinned down the pages. There we go. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, the key words there are his life, his life, and losing it for my sake will find it. Some of you may be familiar with the parable of the treasure that, you know, some guy is walking across the field and stumbles over something and looks at it more carefully and digs down and discovers there's a treasure chest in this field. And he quickly puts the soil back over it again and quietly walks away and gets together a bunch of money, all that he can get, sells everything he's got in order to get more money, and then he goes to the owner of the field and buys that field so that he can go and get the treasure. I think that that parable has several meanings, but I think it's applicable right here. And that is in order to find the treasure that God has for our lives, we must sell out on everything we got. Because it's that valuable. Because when we lose, I mean, here's the, the bottom line. Jesus, if, if Jesus is our Savior, we get eternal life. Amen? If Jesus is our Lord, then he will ask us to lose our life that he can direct our life. 
So I want you to begin to examine yourself for a moment. What areas or times um, has the word, either written word or his leading word, rerouted your life? Uprooted you, turned you around. You had to let go of something that you would have said, mine. God says, no, it's, it's mine. You want abundant life? Let it go. Or when is there a time in your life that you clearly gave Jesus ownership of your life? You know, and there's two ways that God can communicate with us in these things. One is, is uh, the Logos word. And we were just reading it right here. That meaning the written word. In which, you know, sometimes the written word will say, for example, we are to tithe. We are to trust God enough in fact, he challenges us. It's the only place he ever challenged. Test me and see. And, and so we're called to tithe into the kingdom of God, in, into the church, into mission field, but first of all, to the house of God. And I think that's the church. And I don't say that now as a pastor. I just say it as a man. Uh, the, the second thing of, uh, um, is, is the... Uh, Rhema word, which is the revealed word of God, the, the Holy Spirit leading from the Father. And, and as we learn to listen to God, uh, I mean, the first day I go to church, uh, God just started downloading on Dave. I mean, I started hearing things in the midst of worship, crazy things. Like he says to me, I'd had my house up on the market uh, for two years to try to sell it because I had an outrageous mortgage. It was the Jimmy Carter years, 18% interest. When I went through the divorce, I bought out my ex-wife's portion. My mortgage went from $365 a month to $1,200 a month. And if you're an artist, you know, bankers don't look highly on your credit rating. So, and it was 18% interest back then. Wow. <laughs> So I had struggled. I'd put a teepee up in the backyard. I slept in that winter and summer. I rented out every bedroom in my house, you know, and, and studio spaces to other guys and on and on, just trying to raise the money. And it was hard. It was tough times. And finally, get married, come to Christ. And uh, my brother-in-laws are one of the renters. They're living with us. And, uh, and, and then the Lord says, he says, take your house off the market. And let your brother-in-laws live with you rent-free. I'm like, Lord. So I did it, though. And, and my realtor thought God was really crazy. And my brother-in-laws thought God was pretty cool. The, the long and the quick and the short of it is that Within about a year and a half, uh, one day, Lisa and I were up in the mountains having a walk, and we walked on this beautiful property, just, just you know, it was forest land. And there was a meadow, and there was this big stream running through it. And I'd never had this happen before or since, but uh, I do pray in tongues. I have a prayer language, but tongues just erupted out of my mouth. It's just a very short phrase. And then an English translation. I never have had that happen. And, and what the translation was is, I am going to give you 
a place like this. Come down from that experience that afternoon, look on the kitchen counter, and there's a little note from one of my apprentices saying, so-and-so called and wants you to call him back. I call the guy back, and he says, is your property for sale? And I think, mm, see, God said no, but maybe something's going on, because he just said, I'm going to give you a new property. I said, well, I've just become a Christian. I don't know this guy. He says, I've just become a Christian, and uh, I need to pray about this. He says, well, I'm Presbyterian. I, I get that. So, <clears throat> so a couple days later, the Lord says to me, it's okay. You can uh, entertain this, but you don't give him a price. <laughs> God, you don't do real estate this way. No reply. I've learned that when God gives me an instruction and he doesn't answer my argument, it's like, are you going to do it or not? And uh, so I invited them over and they uh, looked the place over. He was buying, he wanted the property. In fact, the very building that I had built for my ex-wife as her studio, it was a beautiful, gorgeous building, uh, and a month later is when she left uh, for another guy. But, and I've forgiven her and blessed her, and we actually have an okay, distant relationship. But um, I, wanted, I used to come home drunk and want to torch that building, you know, honestly. But... That was the building these guys wanted, and they wanted to add on to it for the veterinary clinic. And I was so glad I hadn't torched it. And uh, so they looked the place over, and they said, well, how much you want for it? And I go, what do you want to give? That was about the only way I could work this one out, you know. And they offered me $20,000 more than what I had originally had it on the market for, and now there's not a realtor, except for God. And that's how we sold it. And that's how we had the money to move to Salida and purchase a property very inexpensively that it didn't have a little stream running through. It had the Arkansas River on it. It's the second largest river in Colorado. And it is gorgeous. It is beautiful there. We have to lose possession of our life in order to gain abundant life. We have to lose ownership of it. Sometimes it's a lot harder. It was hard to go from being a potter to being a pastor. I really liked making pots. I'd been around enough pastors to go, this is not an easy road. For some reason, pastors, in my they would come to my studio and talk with me. My first pastor, James Ryle, and we're, I'm a brand new Christian. He'd just come over sit in my studio and just dump. He just unload his stuff. I'm going, I'm like six months old in the Lord. What is this? I just listened. That's all he wanted. I'd encourage him a little bit. So there's treasure in the field, but you're not going to have it if you don't give up ownership of your life. Within this question, what is the hardest to let go of? I don't know about for you, for me what's hardest is usually what has been successful. And I'll tell you, success is a dangerous thing. I'll tell you why. When we really succeed well at something, people, I mean, they applaud. And typically, we get tugged towards that. 
I mean, football players bash their heads out for it. Pastors stay up night after night trying to get that winning sermon. You know, I don't know what else you know is out there like that, but um, we will so often view something and say, wow, that was successful. Therefore, I want to repeat it again and again and again, and we begin to own it, and then we get into a rut. And we're no longer willing to risk and try a new thing. I mean, frankly, even last night when the Lord began to give me this, and I'm going, but Lord, I, I usually am from the wheel, and these guys like seeing me at the wheel, and that's successful. And he's like, uh-huh. I didn't argue that much, honestly. He's so good. So um, be careful of the things that you've been successful in. Don't own them. And when the Lord says, let it go, move on, because there's better fields coming up. So that's the first one. Whose life are you living? Yours or the Lord's? That song, when you say come, I will come. When you say wait, I will wait. So appropriate. Are you willing to give Jesus full ownership of your life? What are the areas most difficult right now for you to let go of? Frankly, one of the hints or clues on that is what do you, when people talk with you, try to understand who you are, what do you talk about? Frankly, for me right now, it's the property we live on. God hasn't said let go of it yet. But I know, I, I love it. I've been there for 27 years. In a sense, there's, there's a, a bit of boasting as to what God has given us. And it would not surprise me if the day comes when he says, let it go. I'll call you up and have you pray for me. All right, number two. Ten, oh, what time did you say we want to do a break? Okay. I think we can do this one quickly. If not, it's a pretty easy one to grab and plunk back into. Number two, the question is, who is your Paul? Who is your Barnabas? Who is your Timothy? For those of you who are new to Scripture, let me explain who these three guys are. Paul was, uh, <clears throat> uh, originally he was a Jewish rabbi, Pharisee, uh, highly religious, uh, knew the Jewish law inside and out, highly respected, very righteous man. Um, was also a man who thought that the the Jesus people and Jesus himself was a fraud and dangerous. And so after Jesus had, had passed away, was resurrected, which he didn't believe in, uh, he took it upon himself to go out and destroy uh, churches and destroy church leaders. And he was on his way to Damascus, and he was met by Jesus in a supernatural way. Blinded, couldn't see, um, Jesus healed him through another man who was a believer in the church that Paul was going out to destroy and, and put into jail. Um, and Paul came to Christ radically. Paul became one of the greatest apostles that we have ever had. And most of the writings after the Gospels are written by Paul. Um, Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, on and on. Um, but Paul was sent out 
The word actually apostle or apostolus is literally being sent out ones. Now, for me, there's like big A apostles. Paul is a big A apostle. The 12 that, or 11 that went out uh, that had been disciples of Christ, um, they were big A apostles, signs and wonders following. But there's another category of ministry that, that is still, I see very much today, apostolos, which simply sent out ones, in which they know they have a ministry that is to go out from the local church, the local church recognizes, blesses it, sends them out. Anyway, so Paul is big A apostle, and the church recognizes, wants to send him out, but he has a friend named Barnabas. Paul is kind of one of these type A guys. I mean, he's going for it kind of guy, you know, and he's bold and he's strong and he gets in your face kind of guy. You read his letters and you see it. And so accompanying Paul is a man named Barnabas. Barnabas, literally, his name means son of encouragement. Bar is son, Nibus is encouragement. And, and Barnabas's nature, as you see in the book of Acts, in the stories there, he's the kind of guy that gives people second chances. For example, originally Paul picks up this young guy named Timothy. He says, this guy's cooking, man, he's young. Bring him along, we can train him up. And then somewhere along the line, Paul goes, I don't think he's got the stuff. So he wants to boot him out. And Barnabas goes, no, no, no. Now, I see good stuff in the guy. And, and so Barnabas takes him under his wing, and the two of them go off together and uh, work together. But that's how Barnabas is. And, and so Paul, for a long time, and there were other friends that Paul had, uh, Paul would, would partner with Barnabas. And then the last person that we're looking at is, is Timothy, this young man. Who Paul had originally noticed and goes, this guy's got stuff. This, is, this guy would be worthy to train up. And Barnabas takes on the task and uh, disciples him, raises him up. And then Paul picks up later and takes him on almost like a son, calls him his son. And writes two letters that are in the Bible to him. A uh, much younger man. So the question to each one of us, part of having an abundant life is to have relationship with other men. Godly relationship. All of us need a Paul. All of us will need a Barnabas, a brother. Paul is a mentor. All of us need Timothys in our lives. Younger men that we can mentor, encourage, speak into, listen to, and so on. So that's the, that's the framework of this. Now, when you're looking for a Paul... You need to look for someone who is ahead of you in life. Maybe they're ahead of you in their walk with Christ. They may even be a bit younger than you, but typically not. But they're ahead of you in, in their spiritual walk, or they're ahead of you in their life walk with Christ. They're older than you, in other words. Uh, someone that you have an admiration for, you're drawn to. It's a person who's going to coach you. In, in some of the big things of life. There's someone who, in a sense, of, if you want to picture, they have climbed much farther up the mountain than you have, which gives them a broader perspective around. You haven't climbed that high yet, and you can't see quite so much yet. And we all need larger perspective in order to know where we're heading, what we're heading into. 
He's got to be someone that knows what's really important. As we age in Christ, as we walk more and more with Jesus, it really gets simpler and simpler. He is a model. The way he lives is worth watching. How he, if he's married, how does he treat his wife? If he has kids, how has he raised his kids? He will have words that are important for you to hear. There will be strength in him and love that you can receive. He's not your buddy. He's not going to be around you all the time. This is small doses, but they're really valuable. In my lifetime, I've had about four Pauls. Three of them have gone to be with the Lord. I have one left. I pray for him a lot. And I'm looking for a couple others. But uh, they have been so valuable in my life. They've blessed me. They've spoken over me. They've corrected me. They've challenged me. Um, and uh, I, I would not be here without them. The second one is the Barnabas man, and I would encourage you to have several. I would encourage you to find men who are somewhat different than you are in personality or gifting, that there be some balance in here. You have a few brothers who will go the distance with you, a few brothers that you can either call up whenever you need to or that you meet regularly, and that's the best, that you meet regularly have a cup of coffee at least once a week. During my pastoral years, uh, I met a man named Harold who was the pastor of the uh, Conservative Baptist Church. Very different kind of church than Vineyard. But I, like I shared with you earlier, I had only read half the book. I was desperately in need. How do you do this stuff? What does this mean? How do you study? And so I asked him, would you help me with this? So initially, he was kind of my teacher. But within a year, we became fellow brothers because there were things he needed from me. And we met every Thursday morning for coffee for up to two hours for 17 years. And with him, we walked through tragedies in his life. He had a, his middle son was killed in a head-on collision. Um, walked through that. Uh, we still, he's moved, he moved away just before I left the ministry, uh, being a pastor. He moved away, still pastoring a church. Uh, in a little tiny town, and we now visit by phone or Skype. So we're still relating with each other. I've had other brothers in the church that I would meet with and talk out things and, uh, you know, help each other out physically, you know, with tools that we have or whatever, or gifts that we have, spiritual gifts. Or in one brother was uh, so close that, you know, we both knew that if, if, we, if Lisa and I were to die in an accident, for example, that they would raise our kids and vice versa. Uh, we, we need brothers like this. Brothers who we can confide in. Brothers who will challenge us, get in our face a little bit, and, uh, and call out stuff that they see. And yet, brothers who accept us right where we're at, but not willing to live with that forever. Um, Brothers who celebrate when there's victory. Brothers who will mourn with us when there's great loss. Uh, there, there's, it's a thing of chemistry. You kind of, you know, as time goes by, you'll recognize this guy is a brother for me. I need this guy. 
And we don't need a lot of them, but we need some. It is one of the greatest catalysts for health and growth. The last category, and we're about three minutes from donuts, uh, is Timothy. We need Timothys. I don't care how old you are in the Lord right now. You need to be starting to look around you. Who is younger than you? Who is younger than you in Christ? Who's hanging out with you? Who's approaching you as well? That you may invest what you have into them. Now listen, those of you, I'm, I'm of the 60s, 70s generation, coming of age. And so, you know, our motto, we were so rebellious, our motto was you don't trust anybody over 30. Some of you can remember. And uh, so, you know, when I first started having young guys coming to me, I'm like, what do you want to hang out with me for? You know, I'm way over 30. And so I literally began to ask questions. And some of these guys were saying things like, well, hey, you know what? A lot of us don't have dads. Most of us don't have you know, parents that are together. I don't know how it is in this area, but in Colorado, it's, it's very transient, very high divorce rate, very broken families. Um, and they just want someone to ask questions. How do you do this? You seem to have a good marriage. How does that work? And we need to be real with them. We need to share truth. We need to really listen. Because they need to be able to speak out stuff. They need to be heard and respected in that. And if we listen to them, they will really listen to us. Be careful and very much in what you share. Don't, you know, you don't have to back up the dump truck and unload it. Uh, that's more for pastors to listen to. We have a tendency for that. But you know, it's, it's, I think it's one of the richest experiences that I have right now. Uh, there's a half a dozen young guys in, in Salida in that community. And even as I travel, I'll have moments of that with, with some young guys. But at home, there's, there's a half a dozen of them. And uh, they're like sons. You know, and, and here's one of the cool trade-offs. You know, I'm getting a little bit older. I'm not quite as physically strong as I once was. These guys come out and split wood. <laughs> they come out and, you know, lift stuff that needs to be lifted. Some of them are skilled in certain things, so electricity, you know, that gets done, and a little plumbing crawling underneath the crawl space, you know. I mean, I, I shouldn't seduce you with all that, but, you know, it's... <laughs> There's, they, they do. They just want to bless us. Okay, we're going to close with that one. We'll pick up the next question after our break. Thanks, guys.